You're listening to the Irish Times. Monday morning in the middle of June, or at the end of June indeed, uh, can only mean a qualifier draw, Pat. Yes, indeed, yeah. It's becoming part of our Monday mornings. <laughs> uh, Kildare have got Mayo, Armagh have got Clare, Leitrim have got Monaghan, and Cavan have got Turo. Monaghan are getting a lovely coastal tour of the country, aren't they? That's a very nice way of putting it. Uh, somebody texted me this morning saying, truly, uh, we are the uh, Man United of this uh, these draws. We are getting the handiest run through of all of these. Uh, there's two Division Four teams this year. I think we had two last year. Uh, and uh, we played a team that we had, well, had lost to, so there was a revenge mission involved in playing down in Croke Park last year. So Monaghan are quite delighted with that draw, I would well imagine. I'm reliably informed that they had a great time down in Dungarvan. Indeed. (laughs) Well, as I was saying uh, over the weekend, what else would you be doing with your life as a Monaghan supporter than heading to Dungarvan, Dungarvan, during a heatwave? To watch uh, your county hand out a hiding in the championship, which they don't often do, uh, and then spend the evening having a few pints in Dungarvan and driving back up the road the next day. Beautiful. What else would you be at? Yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> and now they can do the same thing in Carrick uh, and Shannon. They can do the same in Carrick and Shannon now next Saturday, yeah. Um, Kildare against Mayo, I guess, is the tie of the round. Yeah, um, Mayo... Sadly for them, took another injury blow on Saturday night with Shamie O'Shea with what looks like a dislocated shoulder, mm-hmm. apparently. Uh, and again, as just like Tom Parsons' injury, a completely innocuous mm-hmm. collision or fall, misfortune, whatever you want to call it. I think it might suit Mayo, though. I know they're they're shedding players as they go, but I think a game against Kildare might, might be fine for them. Uh, as we know, they kind of rise to the level of the, of the team they're playing. They got a wee bit behind against Tip and, and kind of knuckled down and went after them and, and savaged them really in in, the, in sort of 10, 15 minutes in the second half on Saturday. It's incredible watching their physical conditioning kind of mm-hmm. come through late on in games. Like in the last 20 minutes, they just blew Tipperary away. Yeah. I don't think Kildare will stop them, but I think the losses of people like Parsons and Shamie yeah. Shea is going to be felt it's, later on, yeah. uh, providing they get to the Super 8s. Yeah. Uh, our man Claire is much of a muchness. Cavan and Tyrone. Cavan and Tyrone played out an amazing uh, draw a couple of years ago. One of the highest scoring draws I've ever seen. And then Tyrone put five goals on them in the replay. Cavan still scored, I think, three, two or three goals against them. Mad game between them. So uh, you'd never know what could happen in those games. Our man Claire will love you. Much of a muchness. Uh, they are much of a muchness. Like they're sort of they both ping pong between Division Two and Division Three. They're you know they're they're more or less exactly the right, same level as each other. Uh, true, but Clare have uh, kind of upwardly mobile notions, and oh, th- they'll too, definitely though. be targeting this. They do indeed, yeah. But Armagh are have recently been at those heights, if you know what I mean. Clare, oh, Jesus, not that recently. Well, I mean, Clare, living memory. Uh, Clare have been to the quarterfinals more recently than our. No, no, that's wrong. Uh, they were both there last year or the year before. Armagh were there last year and got murdered by Tyrone. Clare were there the year before and got murder, murdered by Kerry. That's what I'm saying. I think Fair they're, enough, they're more or less in the yeah, same yeah. level. Uh, excellent. That, that's the qualifier draw. That Those are all going to be on uh, next weekend. Uh, we have such a jam-packed show uh, coming up today. We are talking to Ian O'Reardon about uh, uh, the weekend's uh, football. Mary Hannigan will be in to talk about the World Cup. Uh, Gavin Comiskey will be around to talk about Ireland beating Australia on the weekend. But first of all, 
Keith Duggan is over in Russia. Keith, you're in Kaliningrad. Uh, how are you enjoying Russia? Yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it a lot. It's it's, it's been extremely uh, interesting. Um, I mean, as you've, as you've probably gleaned, the the tournament itself seems to be going off um, just really, really smoothly from the Russians' perspective. Um, the fact that their teams win games as well has helped kind of manufacture some some local enthusiasm. Although, I mean, the place is just so vast that the word local seems sort of redundant. Um, I'm in Kaliningrad now. I left, left um, Moscow yesterday morning. It was sort of, I don't know, about 31 degrees and very, very sort of steamy morning. And landed here in the afternoon and it's about 14 degrees and cloudy and spitting rain. There's a few... Spaniards kicking around, looking really, really cold, not knowing what quite to do with themselves. Um, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a world of extremes so far. Keith, you're in Kaliningrad at the moment. Can you explain to the geographically challenged amongst us what an exclave is? Yeah, well, Kaliningrad, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's very strange. I'd hope to take hope to take a train here from, from Moscow just to see what that was like but um, turns out it wouldn't have been possible as you need you need a you need to have a visa to go through Belarus or else you can sort of be picked off the train halfway through your journey so I had to fly here um, it's basically um, like you say a little Russian enclave between sort of Poland and Latvia um, it's sort of it's, it's a place that sort of has passed through Germanic and Russian rule, sort of back and forth over over the centuries. But after uh, after the end of World War Two, um, basically all the all the Germans who had lived here were were well, they either left or were forcibly evicted, and um, the city was sort of repopulated mainly, I think, by um, Russian military families, and it's been Russian ever since. Kind of heard conflicting reports. Some people saying that it's sort of you know, more more Russian than any city you'd find, and others saying that it's quite been quite sort of influenced by by its proximity to uh, to the rest of Europe, and that would be my immediate impression of it. I only got in here last night, but it's just just very different to uh, to sort of what you well, certainly what I left in Moscow. Must be fascinating, Keith, to to travel around to these places. I, I like I know the World Cup. Most is like an Olympics, you know. You 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 sort of stay in a bubble, and you're an Olympic town or or World Cup town, no matter what country it's in. But a, a country like Russia, it, 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 as you say, so vast and with so many different aspects to it, can't put uh, impact on you somewhere along the way. Yeah, like absolutely. I mean, you know, I was also in Disney for a few days, and unlike Kaliningrad, and both places were effectively closed off to the outside world until of the USSR in the early 90s. So, you know, when you're walking through these places, and, and to be honest, it, 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 the, place, the, place, the cities aren't really festooned in FIFA and World Cup, um, you know, banners and whatnot. Once you go away from the fan zones and once you go away from the sort of, the, the you know, the main streets, you really get a sense of, of uh, just city life and Russian life just going on as it would do, you know. And um, so it's it's you're, you're right. It is it's, it's extremely interesting, and it must be very strange, I imagine, for uh, people who've lived in these cities for sort of forty, fifty years to suddenly um, 
be faced with this influx of nationalities from you know from 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 all over the world, and you can sometimes see the surprise at just the exuberance of some of the you know like the South American fans. They're just behaving as South Americans would do, going to going to a match, which is very different to uh, to the normal sort of street behaviour in these cities. Keith, you went to see Belgium uh, beat Tunisia five two on Saturday. You were very impressed by them. I was impressed by them, but I mean, the strange thing with this World Cup is that the more it goes on, the less we seem to know about you know some of the leading teams. Um, I mean, the thing the thing about Belgium is they they, they were terrific. But Tunisia very much played into their hands by, by 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 chasing the game, leaving themselves quite open and. You know, it could have been they could have scored ten goals, but against that, they struggled. I think for quite a while to to break Panama down. And the, the, you know, the thing about it, I think as well, the Golden Goose um, competition, the sort of subplot of, of of the Golden Goose, sort of it's almost um, there's a there's a degree of randomness about that now in the sense that if you if you have a striker like Lukaku in the face in a team like like Tunisia or obviously Panama with Harry Kane in England, uh, you almost have an unfair advantage straight away and that's you've a, you've a chance to bang in three or four goals. But look, Belgians, the Belgians were, they were just, they were really sublime in periods, but kind of was a sort of a 25 minute period where they just seemed to get stuck and seemed uncertain of what they wanted to do. And you kind of wonder if that might be significant uh, later in the competition for them. Well, it's funny, Keith, the, that you mentioned the Golden Boot. You had a great line in in your report on the Belgium game this morning, where whereby, and I didn't know this at all, that Lukaku in scoring two the other day uh, became the first player since Maradona uh, to score two in successive games. Uh, and why, yeah. why why that really stood out to me when I read it this morning was that Harry Kane went on and did it yesterday. Uh, so they yeah, wait, know. you know, they had to wait, wait the guts of uh, what thirty two years, and then two do it in successive days. I'm wondering is that is that just feeding into what you're saying there? Is kind of tell you how poor the other two teams in the group are? Yeah, I think yeah, I, I think that's the case. And you know, there was the sense over the first for the week that the, you know, the scoring was quite stilted and everything was very, very, very um, cagey and reliant on set pieces and you know heavily defensive teams, etc. And then over the weekend just this just barrage of goals and, and obviously people are beginning to wonder what's going to happen when the uh teams in the competition and they're gonna have weaker teams facing stronger teams and you could go back to the you know the old international score lines of sort of you know seven one and eight one. Uh Keith you're gonna go see Spain Morocco tonight, you looking forward to that one? Yeah um yeah it's gonna be interesting. Uh, obviously, Russia are playing as well as four o'clock. So, kind of curious to see what the uh, atmosphere around Kaliningrad is like. Uh, whether uh, whether there are many sort of just locals turning out for this uh, for this World Cup. I was I was down around the, the fan fest here um, yesterday evening, and I mean there were a few hundred people there, but it was literally only a few hundred, um, and it was it was very very empty. Um, Spain Morocco. You know, it's technically Spain have yet to qualify. They expected to win this, but Morocco have been extremely unlucky uh, in, in losing their in losing their two games. Not to mention the actual World Cup. It's been a pretty miserable uh, time for them. And you just, you know, it, it's just it could be a slightly uh, tricky one for 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 Spain. But 
you know you'd expect them you'd expect them to win. Well, listen, Keith. Thanks a million for uh, for helping us out, uh, and we will uh, hopefully speak to you before you get home. Yeah, yeah, grand. Look, yes, I'm here. I'm here all week. Mary Hannigan was listening to all of that. Mary, thanks for coming in. Hi, uh, Maliki. Happy Heatwave Week. Happy Heatwave Week, yeah. yes, indeed. <laughs> Happy <laughs> it, might not be the appropriate word. But anyway. Yeah, I don't do that great in the sun, no, I've got to say. No. i, I got to say, when I was listening to Keith go on about how it was kind of 14 degrees and uh, raining I know. I where was, he was. and I was checking flights to I, the place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... Thankfully, the World Cup is keeping us indoors. It is. And away from the sun. It is. Yes. Yes. Fans (laughs) firing in every corner of the room. Yes. What uh, what has caught your eye this week? Doug from Bristol. Doug from Bristol, yeah. So, you know, England have a monumental day at the World Cup. History-breaking day and everything. Pass me by, I must have it. (laughs) So Doug from Bristol, I think, had, like, saved up for a long, long time to get to this match and made a... Big, big journey from Bristol to, what was the city again? Nizhny Novgorod. Um, no, no, no. Glad you said that. That's roughly about right. So he arrived yeah, he hung out to dry there. and yeah. he discovered a course that he left his ticket in a drawer in Bristol. Which there is really grand about that. You just go up to the stadium and say, That's here, listen, what I, I thought, left my ticket. Yeah. But not, not in, in this situation. But a very nice man from ITV was trying, met Doug and was trying to help him. Oh, colour gold. Yeah. <laughs> and finally got a ticket for Doug, but couldn't find Doug, and Doug had no mobile phone, so oh. couldn't contact him. So he was trying to get Find Douglas trending on Twitter, right? but it didn't. I actually checked the hashtag, and there was just the ITV man had ah. tweeted it. But they got the ticket, story. Doug got back to his hotel reception, where there was a message to tell him, we have a ticket for you, but by then it was too late to get oh. to the game. So Doug travelled from Bristol to that place that you said <laughs> and, and completely missed the game. If I was Doug, I wouldn't have told anyone I missed the game. I would How, yes, exactly. I just, uh, if the failure of the hashtag yeah. is one part of the story, yeah. how do you know about it? <laughs> how has it reached your ears? It popped up somewhere last night and there was a lot of sympathy for Doug because right. there was a photo of him looking very sad. Don't worry about the like dark corners of the internet Mary <laughs> Hannigan finds herself in. You're a real dark web like br- trawler. Well, if you dig deep enough, you yeah, will find a- dogs missing their tickets and leaving them in drawers <laughs> in Bristol. So that was sad. That was very, very sad because if it was nil-nil, it wouldn't have mattered, but it wasn't nil-nil. As well, we spotted. I, and of course, Doug missed uh, more than just the game. Doug has been missing... What were you telling me about? World Cup World celebrity, Cup celebrity, celebrity catchphrase. catchphrase. Right. Pat, you've been watching this too, haven't you? Own up. I've seen wh- the start of one episode before there was a break and so we got bored. <laughs> but it was Chris Kamara, John Burns and Helen Chamberlain. Right. And Chris Kamara, they said to him, hey Chris, do you remember how many you got right the last time you were on? And his immediate response was to go, why did you ask me back? <laughs> uh, and it's all for charity. And uh, the, they asked about five questions and Helen Chamberlain got all of them. And then we turned it off because it was starting to look like England v Panama, basically. <laughs> and is it just, you know, catchphrase, the old Roy Walker, say what it you is. say? Yeah, but they have Before a football tech. theme to yeah. them. So, oh, like, there was a one where a guy was shown a red card and then it cuts to Mr. Chips getting into a bathtub and you had to figure out, sent for an early bath, you know, that kind of thing. Ah. <laughs> I wouldn't have got that, would you? Well, I think, if, yeah, maybe the bathtub would have given it away. Chris, Chris Kamara and John Burns didn't get it. <laughs> Did they not? <laughs> well, Paul Merson was on last night, directly after ITV's 
coverage of the Poland Columbia game and it's kind of a reminder of how excluded Sky are from this World Cup party like that one of their star men is turning up on catchphrase but amazingly he won now but he didn't win the big prize the kind of charity prize 50,000 one of the ones he slipped up on they showed a bird pecking in a kind of a loving way somebody's face so Merce shouted a cheek on the peck yeah (laughs) So it wasn't. He got. He just. He show, didn't show the kind of composure he would have in his playing career. He just got very excited. Uh, so. And yet, and yet, he did show the composure he regularly shows on, on <laughs> Soccer true. Saturday. So true. his later career is entirely in keeping with that. Because <laughs> I think his contributions to like analysing the World Cup may have ended after England's first game when he said how disappointed he was with Harry Kane and his form and all of that. So like 87 goals later, he's probably not been invited back. I was watching uh, Sky, uh, what was I watching? Was I watching golf or something like that last week? And, uh, or maybe it was... uh, (laughs) That's well you might ask, Mary. Very good question. But uh, at one point, uh, one of their presenters, you know the way they're constantly trailing what's coming up next and said uh, it was... Oh, no, it was at halftime in the rugby the other day, at halftime in the Ireland game the, the other day. And he said, uh, I'm coming up in the sky tonight. Uh, uh, you know, we have we have the USPGA golf and we have uh, Scotland, Argentina and the rugby. No, uh, no football. Football will be back in August. And you're going, sorry, bud. <laughs> Got to stop you there. Think... The whole of the world is actually watching football at the minute, just it's not a, watching it on your it's like channel. It doesn't exist because they just have photographs, yeah, which is exactly. kind of a tough time. There was a bit of that almost with because the BBC had the Panama game when they went to ITV then later in the night. I mean, ITV were excited, but it was almost like they just wanted to put the game down a little yeah. bit because it was the BBC game. It's like <laughs> now everything is about the Belgium game, which of course that isn't really. So yeah, they, they, they can be kind of uh, odd that way. But yeah, Pearl Sky, very, very excluded apart from Merce and Celebrity Catchphrase. Pat, you had good news on Saturday night. Oh yes, the Shirley Bassey um, <laughs> concert programme was finally Finally on. went out. Because <laughs> I, I, I don't have ITV unlike Mary, so I haven't been able to watch Roy Keane, which means that every time they cut to a break on RT, the first thing they advertise is this Shirley Bassey do- or concert film. Yeah. As if there's an unbelievable crossover between World Cup fans and Shirley Bassey. <laughs> I just don't understand I have to it. confess, I didn't realise she was alive. <laughs> Like what is she must be about like a hundred and eight. Ah, Mary, for God's sake! But she has been kind of around. Like, so was this a live thing they were showing, or well, like as live, or right? as live, right? Posthumous. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've never seen anything advertised. Not sure even the late 81. late toy show. Eighty one. Eighty one. Okay, well that's about twenty five years younger than I thought. But the late late toy show show wouldn't be advertised as much. No, it certainly wouldn't so be advertised at halftime in a football no, match. No, I, I just yeah, that was a strange market targeting thing yeah. going on there. They never even advertised like the Sunday game or Yeah. Did you watch early in the end? No, I didn't. I'm just glad it's over. <laughs> That's, well, I mean, it's not to say they'll stop advertising that. No. <laughs> There'll be repeats, so, yeah. They'll just carry. Yeah, it was, it was a strange It would be one, amazing yeah. if they had it's a It's usually, next like, week. raised. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> it did so well because of all the advertising yeah. they did. We're going to show In the it first again. place, they're going to keep showing it. But yeah. nobody would have missed it the first time. But it was odd because when you go to ITV during all the World Cup games, they're just all ads for betting, betting. companies. Yeah, and razors. 
that's kind of it tends to be those two things. Betting razors and cars. Yes, cars. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas. So if you want to shave and have a bet while driving your <laughs> box all ass, you're laughing. ITV yeah. are, are aiming their stuff. So at you. that's what I. But I RT went for the Shirley Bassey market. Yeah, strange that's strange. <laughs> How is Roy getting on on ITV? Well, he's going home, so um, he's home early from a World Cup. <laughs> that's not the Roy Keane I know. I know. ITV will be getting on to Bertie begging him to the plane <laughs> on the runway. Take bring Roy back because he has been quite a hit, I think. But yeah, he's gone home for two weeks. Apparently, I would imagine the dog needs walking. Um, so, but yeah, I think he's gone down pretty well. Um, his just sizzling annoyance at all the people sitting on the panel with him, I think, has caused amusement. He had a fantastic bit last night, which I did see because I, I watched the Poland Columbia game on yeah. ITV, and uh, at the end of it, as you say, they did their. Oh yes, and, and by the way, England won six one today. <laughs> uh, but um, and they went they like they very deliberately started at at the end of the line. So they have four pundits. So they Gary Neville, who talked about you know England have got six of their eight World Cup goals from set pieces, and that's a big tribute to the coaches. And he, he said kind of forlornly, yeah, when I was coaching them, it was really hard to get them to stay on after training and work on set pieces, <laughs> but they're obviously doing it now. <laughs> uh, and then uh, uh, Ian Wright did his Ian Wright stuff yeah. and uh, Slavin Village did his kind of Slavin Village stuff. And it was all very kind of hooray, hooray for England. And Roy just, they were obviously, obviously just setting Roy up for, right, Roy, you're going to have 70 seconds now, <laughs> go. And he went, like... What are England going to win the World Cup? Is that what we're? Is that what I would just be? I would just be advising them win the next game. Yeah. But, and and the thing was, it was it was prototypical, Roy. Yeah. And then two seats down, completely as a complete non sequitur, Wright was pacing himself. <laughs> I mean, I mean, absolutely like falling off a chair as and kind of like pointing and laughing at at Keane and as if to say, can you believe? This guy, can you have you ever heard anything so funny in all your life? Throwing his head back, <laughs> this guy, and, and like all Keane was in was like win the next game. I know. <laughs> Roy's efforts at just bringing some kind of composure to the the scene failed miserably. Yeah, I loved his line about Botang the having six hundred and fifty pairs of shoes. He said he can't be right in the head. <laughs> Whereas everyone else in the panel was like, is that all? 650. And then he was given out about Jesse Lingard's celebration. He just, Roy just can't be handling all of this modern stuff at all, at all. Roy's not a big Fortnite player then. No, I doubt. Mm. I doubt. Yeah. Like you can, you can do a wee bit too much of that stuff. But I have to say their, their panel at least is interesting that yeah, way. Yeah. The other ones, the BBC and RT ones are very professional. They are dull is the word you're looking for. Yeah, like yeah. it's all very straight yeah. and and good and yeah. you know on point and everything like that. But it's I don't know. There's it's not laugh jammed. Like, <sighs> <laughs> sure, it's not. <laughs> it, no, it is kind of heavy going. I mean, I, like I think Fabregas was very good. In I BBC. have liked him. Now. Yeah, he's yeah. gone now. But um, yeah, and like the, the Kevin been, Doyle has been very good. He has. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's. Yeah, he's put a bit of personality into it, but yeah. I, I think a lot of it has been a bit on the, the dullish side. Yeah, and like, I, I don't know to a certain extent what, what we're looking for, hmm. but you kind of know it when you see it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't know, I've, 
when games are over, I kind of move on with my day. I know, I know. <laughs> you don't mm, want to right. mark in a coroner's. Half time. Beer tea at half time. Yeah. Yeah. Mark in a coroner's been analysed for 10 minutes. I, I don't know. Is, is it a bit of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like, the, I, I always remember, like, the, like the BBC at the 98 World Cup were, were uh, in Paris and they were up in the top of a, their studios and up on the top of a building. That's right. At, yeah. a, at a break in one of the games or between games, Des Lynham stood up from his chair and got the cameraman to follow him and kind of looked out over the Paris skyline and said, you know, there's the Eiffel Tower, there's the Arc de Triomphe, and there's the Louvre and all of that. And it was like, you know, perfectly urbane Des Lynham. And it was great crack. And then he sat back down and Ali McCoist was on the panel and sat beside him. And he said, uh, Ali, have have you been to any any of the spots? Have you been to the Louvre? He said, yes, Des, I went a couple of minutes ago. I was bursting. (laughs) Oh, it was brilliant when he did it. It was he was far funnier delivery than, than, than mine. But like, there is none of that. There's not. And ITV they showed a clip yesterday of that row between Jack Charlton and Derek Dugan. It was seventy four World Cup or something? Oh yeah. It yeah. was just and because you kind of think now, like you, you don't. Forget well, I wouldn't have remembered seventy four, but you forget there was mighty crack was yeah. had on those yeah. panels. I yeah. mean, Brian Clough, Malcolm yeah. Allison, yeah. Um, yeah, like lots and our of own, them. like you know, exactly, you, you know, yeah. When, when Dumpy and Giles and Brady were, were at it. their peak, but there's, there's, there's see, a, it's, it's just about. here's yeah. the football. There was the football. Yeah. Keep moving on, Mary. Thank you so much for coming in. Not a problem. We will have uh, more of you next week and the week after. And God love you. You might just you might just have talked yourself if, into doing this full time. If we survive the heat wave. If we survive the heat wave, indeed. Mary, thanks a million. Enjoy. Don't bother. It was a football weekend. There was no hurling around. Hurling's coming back next week. Uh, Ian O'Reardon is on the line. Ian, you were up in Clonus. Uh, I, I was debating last night... Who was the most interesting team to come out of the weekend? I was down in Cork and Kerry were certainly very interesting, but there's really, there's something brewing in that Donegal team, isn't there? Yeah, I think so, Malachi. I think the last Ulster final I was actually asked was 2012 when Jim McGuinness um, led Donegal to their title. I think that was the second title for him. And the way they just, the way they just completely dominated uh, down that day and, uh, we all know what happened later that summer. And there was something about the way Donegal played yesterday against Fermanagh. It kind of reminded me of that. Um, so much so that Rory Gallagher, the Fermanagh manager, he actually shook hands with Declan Bonner like a few minutes before the final whistle as if to say, you know, hats off. That was a phenomenal performance. There's no, there's no arguing with that. There's no arguing with that. Um, so for sure, Donegal, I think they're possibly the best display I've seen since 2012. Um, you know, 13 different scores. I can't remember the last time Donegal had 13 different scores. They racked up 218 yesterday. I think that brings their Ulster Championship total to something like eight goals and 80 points or eight goals and 78 points. Now, that is over four games, uh, admittedly. But, um, yeah, certainly uh, certainly uh, one of the finest displays I've seen from Donegal. It's got to be put in the context of Fermanagh, who, um, you know, it has been said, their first, you know, they still haven't won an Ulster title. It was only, it was only their, I think, their fifth or sixth Six, Ulster yeah. final ever. Sixth, yeah. So, I mean, it was a... That was kind of their. That was kind of their, their. You know, the extent of their moment. I suspect was making that final. At no point in that game did it look like they were going to win. Um, it was kind of the classic. I don't know that kind of boxing analogy that's overused. But Donegal just sat back for the first couple of minutes, rolled with the punches, and then just hit them with two goals, and it was game over. Um, I mean, 
the way the way that that's classic Donegal. They can just they can just put teams away in short bursts and, and on the counter attacks and like Ryan McHugh was electric. Um, Michael Murphy obviously dominating around midfield. Paddy McBurkey was quiet. Went off injured at halftime with a bit, with a bit, bit of a knock, but was hardly missed. Um, players like Michael Langdon. And their top scorer, joint top scorer of the day was Owen Van Gallagher, their, their, their corner back, yeah. their kind of roaming defender. So certainly uh, uh, in, terms of, in terms of performances of the summer, as far as I'm concerned, that, that's right up there with the best I've seen, yes. It's such an energetic game that they play and they, like, they've, they've sort of turned over the generations since 2012. You know, it's a, this is a more or less completely different team. I guess you have four or five maybe uh, uh, players common to both teams, but... The, the energy involved in this is is really something to see. Um, I guess the question is, when they're playing three games in four weeks uh, in the Super 8, uh, especially if uh, if this weather lasts through the summer, um, that's, that's fairly high-octane stuff to have to keep going week after week. Yeah, but you know, I think I don't think it'll bother them because you say they are a young team. Um, I mean, right, right from their goalkeeper Sean Patton, I hadn't seen much of you know he's really settled into that position and he's really kind of nailed that nailed that goalkeeper duties. And you know, you mentioned Gallagher, there's Hugh McFadden at midfield is really improving a lot. This guy Michael Langan, centre forward, uh, had a big game. He's 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 one of these really fit kind of gangly type runners. Um, the three or four guys who came off the bench, including Mark McHugh, still knocking around. Anthony Thompson as well. Like that was first appearance. So, in terms of the depth of the squad, I don't think they have any problems there. Um, they're certainly one of the fittest teams I've seen. I mean, that, that, that term physicality, physicality. I mean, they're not just fit, but they're, they're you know they're built to last as well. A bit like the Dublin team and Michael Murphy. I mean, I've said this before, but if he if he stays fit, uh, I, I think he's in line to be a footballer of the year at this stage because he's, he's so dominant in different games. Um, and he's, and he's getting better with every game as well. But yes, I mean you've got to put this in context of two things. To say number one for Manor, look, they were poor on the day. I mean, Clone is it's a great occasion and and also fine as you well know. I mean the crowds were fantastic, the colour was great, but to be honest, there wasn't much excitement because as I said, there was no point did you feel like for Manor were going to actually win the game. It was all over at half time and Donegal really, really took the took the foot off. But um yeah, certainly. I think I, I still think that the best is yet to come with this Donegal team, and it's lined up perfectly now in the Super Eight. As in that their next game will be three week time against Dublin, so they they'll you know they'll they'll they'll, they'll straight away know exactly where they are. And I think for Dublin too, it'll be um, it'll be a proper a proper telltale sign of just just how good that team is too. In Fermanagh's defence managed to hold out Armagh and Monaghan already this year, really. Whereas Donegal just went through them at pace and with great kind of attacking verve, they're going to enjoy getting to Croke Park in the Super Eights, aren't they? And you get the impression that they'll appreciate taking on the challenge of playing somebody like Dublin. Yeah, I mean that was one of the one of the assets that we thought Fermanagh had was that they did a very strong defence. They'd be conceding very low scores, but uh, but Donegal very quickly found a way through, and it was from that kind of it was from the sort of the, the rear guard action or the counter attack. I mean, I mentioned Ryan McHugh there. Paul Brennan scoring two points, Paddy McGrath. I mean, you know, five or six of the points came from their from their defence, and um, certainly you used to suspect that might be a slightly different challenge for Dublin. They're very big around mid- midfield. Um, I mean, Michael Murphy will certainly be have no fears over Brian Fenton. McFadden is a young guy. I think he'll fit in well beside someone like Michael Darren McCullough. So it's a classic. It's a classic matchup, Brady. Really. I mean, they're they're similar in, in, in many ways. Um, they do play that kind of sort of like short burst counter-attacking game and they're able, to, they're, able to, they're able to kind of mix it up a little bit. I mean, the other thing as well is I think Fermanagh won the first two or three kickouts, but once 
Donegal press or close on those, that, that was that was completely ruled out as well. So very efficient. Funny, Ian, that was one of the, the one question I was going to ask you because obviously you know the opposition kick out when you're playing against Dublin is is crucial. How how aggressive were they on Fermanagh's kickouts? Very very aggressive, I'd say. I mean, I think I mean Ryan McHugh's goal. Uh, I'm pretty sure came straight from a Fermanagh kick out. I think it was won by Paul Brennan, maybe. Passed off to McHugh. That, that's how efficient they are from, from winning kickouts. Um, but but again, it's 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 a different test for Dublin in the sense that I think the physicality of the Stony Gold team. I keep using that word. Like I mean, it's one thing to be fit and strong, but but to mix that up with the skills and the pace of players that they have. And I mean, I I, I don't know what weight Ryan McHugh is. I reckon he'd run. A, I reckon he'd make a decent miler. Like he's got he's got an incredible turn of pace. But he's you reckon out. you reckon all GA players would make decent milers? That's all. That's what you spend your time at at these matches going. 800, 1500, <laughs> definitely a mile or oh, he could be, he could be a 5000. I, I don't think Jack McCaffrey is absolutely wasted in the Dublin team for <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> he should be he should be yeah. He should be running in a green vest. But but it's true and I think that that's that's but look, I wouldn't say that about every team, but I definitely say that about the Stony Gold team. And you know, I felt I felt, I felt sorry for Rory Gallagher, but I could see it was a mixed emotional day for Rory Gallagher. I mean, he was he's with that team essentially for the last 6 years either either with McGuinness or his manager himself. I think he said he had something like 800 training sessions, and then within a year he's turned around. But I think Declan Bond, you got to give him credit for that. And he, he was a guy who worked with a lot of those younger Donegal teams as minor manager. He's clearly, he's clearly gelled them together. Maybe they, they, they didn't have the last couple of years. And um, look, it's still early days. And I think, you know, once, once Tyrone and Monaghan were eliminated out of the other side of the draw, I think, I think Donegal always knew they were going to, probably going to win the Sulcer title handy. Um, and I think they've they won pulling up, which is always a good way. You know, there's a lot more in, this, in, the, in their tank. And I suspect that's, that's, that's a, I'm sure Jim Gavin will, will have watched that game, will be watching that game and thinking, wow, this, this, definitely, this is definitely an entirely different prospect coming down the track in, uh, in three weeks' time. Yeah, Malachi, speaking of winning pulling up, you were in Parky Cueve on Saturday evening. Mm. Kerry were incredible, I thought. It, it's often hard to judge these things watching on television. But they essentially did a full court press on Cork's kickout for the entirety of the first half, and they were aggressive in both where they were positioned on the pitch and how they went after the breaking of balls. Ah, uh, yeah, like they it they were just two different teams. It was so striking the the gap in physicality in intent between the two teams. Kerry Kerry were uber fit, real snap into the tackle, real like hunting, hunting, hunting. Uh, Cork actually just didn't, you know, and it's weird to say it for an intercounty team in a Munster final. They didn't look fit, com- certainly compared to Kerry. They they had nothing like Kerry's uh, level of, of fitness and physicality. And like Cork aren't a particularly young team. They're like Kerry were a far younger team. Um, but they were they were f- so aggressive, so so full of intent. And when you when Kerry have that. Uh, and then they have a full forward line of David Clifford, Paul Ganey, and James O'Donoghue. Um, they're a savage, a really savage article. Um, also with the likes of David Moore in midfield and Paul Murphy running on from wherever Paul Murphy wants to run on from. They're, they are going to take serious stopping. Like, uh, I was talking to, to some Kerry people afterwards and they were, you know, kind of going, yeah, we could, that's that's going to be a good team this year. It's going to be even better now next year. And part of me was going, yeah, yeah, fi- fine. You know, I, I, I know people don't want to get too carried away and make a team with what has six, seven, 20-year-olds on it. 
they don't want to go straight away. These guys have to win this year. I don't know about that. Uh, like, they've beaten absolutely nothing so far. But on top of that, David Moran is 30 this week. Uh, you know, he doesn't have another three years to wait for everybody to mature to, to the right level to, to win an All-Ireland. He'll be wanting to get out there this year, get after Dublin, see see how far they go. But they were they were brilliant. Now, they were really, really brilliant. Like, Clifford is is absolutely to the manner born. Like, he made uh, that cornerback, core cornerback Sam Ryan, he made his life an absolute misery for the 17 minutes he was on him until Ryan got a black card. I think Ryan's black card is probably a little bit harsh, but I'd say part of him as he was walking off was going, whew. God, I'm glad that over because he was just running rings around him from behind. The, exactly as you say, the sort of thing you don't see on TV, but sitting in the stand, he was making four runs for every ball and your man was just, he was a, a half a second behind on each run, which when you added up to four second, to four runs, that's two seconds. He, he hadn't a clue where Clifford was when the ball was coming in. Um, so they're doing that all across the pitch. Galway will be a different thing. But in fairness to Kerry supporters, the part of the reason that they're thinking this team is going to come is because they're so young. Mm. You saw Mayo on Saturday night. They're clearly the conditioning of the last six or seven years just kind of blowing Tipperary away in the last 20 minutes. But these Kerry lads are 20. It seems surprising that they're so well conditioned coming in now. It's funny. I was talking to Kieran Donahue about that afterwards. And he was saying, look, these lads have been doing weight since they were 14. They are, you know, they are men. They're coming into this team as men. And... Clifford is a beast. Mm. Sean O'Shea is a beast. Gavin White playing at wing back. And that was my first time seeing him. I had heard plenty about him. Like, as fast as Jack, Jack McCaffrey, I'd say, coming from wing back. Jason Foley is apparently the quickest player in the team. He was playing cornerback. He got an early yellow card. But he's, he's a really, really fast, aggressive player. That's what they have. Like, it's so... Kerry have walked through Munster the last six years... This is a different experience of, of watching a Kerry team that, you know, at times before could be kind of slow and leaden or whatever. There's so much pace. And, so, and I you know, whether they have the experience, that'll be a different thing as, as, as the year rolls on. Ian, you probably enjoyed watching your fellow county men on Saturday night put in that performance. But Galway yeah. are going to be a completely different challenge for them. It's, they're going to be meeting a packed defence and a very physical team. Well, yeah, no, I agree with everything Malachi said there. And uh, I was actually watching the game with my dad, who reckons he knows a bit about Kerry football. <laughs> and two things he said to me were, number one, he was like, who are these players? Because, you know, like, I think like a lot of people, he hadn't been overly familiar with a lot of the younger players. And secondly, he was like, yeah, this, this, is, this, this is definitely the most exciting Kerry team <laughs> since, dare, dare I say, the 1970s. Just that sort of sudden injection of youth and, you know, that sort of verb and all, the, all those words. But, um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, look, I mean, Cork was so bad yesterday. It's almost, it's almost, it's almost, not even worth trying to analyse how poor they were. And I agree with the fitness thing as well. It was like, they, they just seem to be off the pace and there's absolutely no excuse for that at a, at a senior inter-county level to be, to be dropped off the pace so early in the game, not chasing down ball, not chasing down your man, all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, goal would, be, goal would be a completely different challenge again because they will stick with Kerry. Like they'll, they'll, they'll harass Kerry and do all those kind of things. But, but I agree with the, but just the, the range of talent that Kerry have and you, you, know, you throw in the likes of David Clifford, and then you have Donny's. Donny's there still knocking around, so they can they can mix up their game. So it's really exciting, and that's why you know we keep we keep looking ahead here, and it's it's kind of it's a pity that we're not looking back more and kind of close contests and sort of trying to analyse why teams won as opposed to just how good they are. And that that's, that seems to be the theme of the 
provincial finals so far. We can only hope that when it gets to those Super 8 stages, there'll be a little bit more balance across the board. But if you think about it, we've had four provincial finals. I think the average winning margin is 12 points. So it's, uh, it still seems to be all kind of um, all kind of foreplay in the, in, the, in the football championship so far. Well, there's plenty of the road left to go in. Listen, thanks a million and uh, we'll talk to you again. Pleasure as always. Cheers, Ian. As a headline uh, on the Irish Times website this morning said, Ireland look for world domination. England try and keep the hype in check. Uh, our world domination is in a different sport to England's. Uh, Gavin Comiskey is on the line to talk about uh, finally beating a Southern Hemisphere team in a series for the first time in 40 years. Uh, Gavin, thanks for joining us. No problem. How are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Uh, that game on Saturday morning, I was just so struck by how physical it was. It it, it was one of it was a war. Mm, nervy as well, wasn't mm. it? What it reminded me of rewatching it again, it was the Ireland defence in the last five minutes was similar to watching the forty plus Ireland phase attack in Paris. Same thing, same systems. First major game two thousand eighteen, back to the last one of the season and they're doing the same thing. So no Irish team we have to you have to applaud them and call them it's the greatest season in Irish rugby simply because no Irish team has been able to produce in a third test in June ever. They've all been dead out in their feet. And whatever Nick Wingleman's doing, Jason Cowman, all these lads in the back room to have a team on the pitch that's able to win a test series. It's that's the newest that's the most interesting new ground we've broken like no Sean O'Brien, Dan Levy, Ian Henderson, Gary Ringrose. Guys, you probably you're not supposed to be able to win a test series if you're an Irish team without them. And still we do it. It's it's remarkable. And the physicality of the damage that they were doing and it was still Ireland just kept soaking it up. CJ Standers stands out for me as Ireland's best player all season. He doesn't get the plaudits probably because he's a South African. But um he's uh, he's been his stats are off the charts in every single game with James Ryan right It's funny him. you mention him because uh, as your as your prelude there, you're talking about the, that that time in Paris, and his line afterwards stands out uh, in context of of that and the end of the Australia game. You know, going to that dark place was not what he said in, in about that phase in Paris. You know, you go to this dark place. Yeah, yeah, and I remember just watching him this season. I remember watching him a couple of years ago when Munster were in all sorts, and he was the captain, and he'd come out in front of us. After months had lost, he had another game, which is three seasons ago now. And um, so he's been through a lot, this kind of a guy, when he talks about going to dark places. He, he's, he's a freakish athlete. and he, he's, Ireland will never, you don't really know how lucky they are to have got him. It was really good business to pick him up years ago. Um, the same can be said about Bundy Aki in the centre. Like the, the two of them, now everyone gets flawless, but the two of them, what they've done um, for this team has taken them on to another level. But we could, I could say this about every single player. It's, it's truly remarkable what's happening. And then you, but at the same time, and I know this is what Joe Schmidt's doing. Joe Schmidt is watching what South Africa have just done to England because if the World Cup quarterfinal next year is probably going to be South Africa, on the premise that the All Blacks can beat this South African monsters in their group match. So that's the whole thing now. The whole Joe Schmidt thing is he will tune in on, we have to figure out a way of being South Africa. Um, that's still miles away and all that. Like, and obviously, you go talk about all the other sports for a while now, and every rugby disappears, um, and it comes back as an absolute blockbuster game in November when the All Blacks come to Dublin. I suppose, Gavin, if Joe Schmidt was looking at England and South Africa at the weekend, he'd probably be thinking on where England were 12 months ago and 
Like they went to Australia and had a 3-0 test series after coming off a Grand Slam and basically hit a lot of speed bumps after that. Joe Schmidt is going to have plans in place that for the same thing not to happen to Ireland. Yeah, they're not comparable either. They're two different things. The starters, Australia were in peace. We're nowhere in, like, Australia still have a huge amount of work to do, by the way. Like, Cheka has no out-halves after Bernard Foley because he won't go back to Quay Cooper, which is understandable. Um, they have, like, young fellas. He's got a load of young kind of Tongan, South Sea Islanders. He's brought into the front row. Like, they're not ready at all. Like, really, Ireland really needed to win this test series. Um, like, the Australians were shocked because they just thought Ireland would never come down and beat us, you know. But besides having the two best players in the world in Falau, who's up for a very interesting disciplinary hearing this week, and David Pocock, they are not a team that are, should be leaving with Ireland, even an Ireland team without O'Brien, Levy, Henderson, Ringrose. Ireland were expected to win this test series, and they needed to for the next for, take the next step. The English thing as a comparison is, is not the same, because Eddie Jones is, it seems like it's spiraling a little bit out of control. He's just lost Gustard. And there's still, still the potential to be a very, very good team. But the most interesting things for me from June, besides the magnificence of Ireland and all that in our defence and everything, has been the progress of France in the first half of all the New Zealand games. And South Africa, under Rassi Erasmus and Jackson Yamar, have got their act together. Gavin, one of the things, if you were looking for faults uh, over the course of the tour, you might say that we do seem to expend a lot of energy at times. We'll say we gain a lot of possession, we gain a lot of territory, and we seem to struggle to convert. Is that a worry? Um, yeah, of course it's a worry, but it's just the way the team are built as well. Um, it's the way the structures are. Now, it would have been nicer to see it, and I think I think we will see it in November. I think you'll see them go on to a better, take it to another level of offensive play. Um, but the Australian defence will get a bit of credit, especially in the first test for the way they kind of ganged up on them and all that. And yeah, you want to see it. See, you've, you watch the way the French are performing in the first half of the June and you watch the way the All Blacks do it. And that's a ridiculously high bar, though, you know. Uh, Ireland are still, they're playing, they're at absolute maximum velocity and they're, they're nailing all their things. But yeah, that's, that, that is nitpicking. And I just don't think we should nitpick after this season because this has been the greatest season in the history of Irish rugby. So yeah, there's little things, but it's never been this good, you know. It's it's remarkable. So no, Joe Schmidt will concerned. definitely nitpick, though. <laughs> yeah. That's what he does. That's what, like he was sitting there watching, uh, sitting beside Jack McGrath after the game, and Jack was like, "I'll see you in August, Joe." And Joe was like, "I'll see you in July." I think Jack McGrath got married, and he was like, "Probably <laughs> it's almost if he was curtailing his honeymoon." You know? um, yeah, it's just the way he is. He was. He mentioned the word anxiety twice in his pre-match uh, press conference uh, because he was the bus was late by half an hour. Again, there is some curse going on with Joe Schmidt at buses, um, and he was freaked out. And it, on the pitch, reporters in the stadium were saying he's. They've never seen him so animated in the warm-up and he was roaring and screaming at people and everything. And then they come out and get the first score. So like it doesn't matter. Um, he is the way he is. But j- just as a side, I think what's a really interesting thing in June has been the level of officiating, which has been just terrible, I think. In the Ireland-Australia Test Series for both teams, France, John Lacey ruined uh, for the third week in a row. The France-New Zealand game was ruined. A John Lacey decision where... Uh, his comments, I'm happy, will follow him around for a long time after he blocked Saren to pretty much set up Damon McKenzie's try. Looked at the big screen and didn't didn't turn around. Leonard Alloy can get away with it, but like when Justin Marshall and All Black comes out and says it's an injustice, uh, yeah, the officiating's been all over the shop. And now a really interesting hearing comes up with Izzy, Israel Farlau, who obviously was in the was all the headlines at the start of the test series for his comments on homosexuality being a sin and they're going to hell. And now at the end, he's going in for landmark 
disciplinary hearing for the two uh, incidents in the air with Peter O'Mahony, um, where it's going to be very interesting how World Rugby deal with this because um, Benjamin Fall was also sent off for France against New Zealand. So, I mean, look, Peter O'Mahony got very badly injured, but it was also because CJ Stander was lifting him. So there's a very interesting how that case is dealt with. I think World Rugby are going to have to get um, their arms around it because they're leaving their officials, they're hanging their officials out to dry as it, as it stands. Uh, we'll wrap it up in a few minutes, Gavin, but t- what are we going to do with uh, Johnny Sexton going around thinking that uh, all the referees in the world hate him? I, sa- I saw his, uh, I saw it described as the most emo thing that was ever said on a, on, a, on a sports field when he said to the referee, I know you hate me, but you have to talk to me. Oh, yeah, there was, I actually was, if you listen to it back just beforehand, there is a bit of context. And he was being a little bit sarcastic. Yeah, I know, yeah. The uh, maybe himself and Gozier probably like he told them to go away a few times in the game because Peter Manny was the captain, mm. and he does try to talk to them, and he probably has a bit of a back history with Gozier. But Omani was paved out on the ground because uh, of the incident in the air with Falau, and he tried to approach him, and he'd been told to go away, and he was like, "No, no, no, you have to deal with me. I'm the captain. <laughs> I know you hate me, but you have to talk to me." And um, this brings the captaincy debate into question because. Like Johnny Sexton obviously is absolutely essential to everything Ireland do. There is that's without doubt. But who is the captain now? Um, does Johnny keep the job? The Peter Manley's going to struggle. He'll be brilliant during the Test series and a great leader, but he's very injury prone. Does he even get into the team when everyone's back on deck? Same goes for Rory Best. Now that all the hookers have come through. Um, do they go completely left field and make James Ryan the captain? He's going to be the captain for ten years, I'd say. Anyway, whether maybe after Ooh, this World Cup, that'd be very. Um, it would be very early, but it's been done before. When Brian O'Driscoll was made captain when he was 21, 22, I think. Yeah, but um, he, he was Brian O'Driscoll at that stage. But this is James Ryan. He's James Ryan already, so he is. Mm. He is. Have you seen a better player, a better second row in the last month of rugby? I haven't. It just it doesn't exist at the moment. He is the man. But, I, but Johnny Sexton as a captain is entertaining, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's the best way forward, you know. Yeah, I, I mean... He he is a, a man of magnificent skills. I don't know if he he just has the diplomacy for that gig now. I just love it because he just must be... What's quite funny what he does is it's kind of a little bit of intimidating because he talks. You ever hear him in press conferences? Johnny doesn't mess about. Like He talks straight to you. Yeah. So what he does is he does try to relate to the referees on a human man-to-man level, you know, <laughs> which sometimes they don't like. And then, um, and then, when, and then it, when it all goes wrong, he relates them on a teenager-to-man level. Yeah, but look, look, it worked. He got the job done. There was a couple of little inter. He had really some key moments where he was talking to him in the in the end game there, and it worked. I actually, as it stands, I'd say Johnny Sexton will be the captain of Ireland going into the World Cup. Certainly going into November because I don't think Rory Best will get his place back. I think Nas Scanlon will nail down that position. Sean Cronin, we just definitely an issue there, which um, has nothing to do with his performances. I think he'll be on the bench. Rory Best, you have to remember, will be thirty six next year. I've never. Most rugby bodies don't make it to 36. And the ones that do, as you saw, Paul O'Connell tend to break down in the middle of their 35, 36. So these are all good problems, but um, there is a couple of little problems. Well, Gavin, your rugby body has had a very long season to deal with, so we will let you off on your summer holidays. Thanks a million for joining us, and uh, we'll see you, uh, well, I hope, hopefully, hopefully not see you for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm gone. Three, four weeks. Good Be luck. good. And thank you to Gavin. Thank you to everybody we had earlier. We had Keith from Russia. We had Mary in here. We had Ian who were reading on the line. Thanks to Jenny and JJ. Thanks to you, Pat. Thanks, Pat. Thanks to everybody. And we'll see you again next week. Take it easy, folks.